doctor, 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 Hey y'all, welcome back to The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around in coffee shops, well we're not in a coffee shop right now but I'll get to that, and discuss great books. Each episode features a free flow conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops, or a tea shop. We're actually recording this episode at the Heritage Tea House in St. Paul, so cheers to them for letting us do so. Um, I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African American Literature and Folklore in the English Department at the University of St. Thomas. I'm Adriana Astle, and I teach in American Studies and English at Carleton College. And I'm Crystal Moulton. I teach History at McAllister College. Awesome. So in this episode, we're discussing Carmen Maria Machado's book, Her Body and Other Parties which is a collection of brilliant and pretty bizarre short stories. Uh, this book is Machado's first one, and it's won like a whole bunch of prizes, including the Bart Fiction Prize, the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. In an interview with Jezebel, the book is described as a collection of, quote, queer feminist ghost stories. And Machado says that she thinks of the stories as describing what she says are the surreal liminal horror of being a, about being a woman or a queer person in this world. And it's definitely a book that made me blush, especially knowing that Todd's mom is reading it along with us. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> also, thank you, Mrs. Lawrence, for listening to our episodes. We really appreciate it. Um, and I thought I'd start us off, since we've been kind of thinking about genre in our last few episodes, um, to ask about... Is there like a technique to approaching a collection of stories? Like how do I as a reader think about the stories kind of on their own or as a collection? How do we, yeah, what do we, what do we think? Adriana, you want to? I can tackle first and then you can tag See, in. What, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm going to throw to you, let, <laughs> let you say some things, then I'll think of some things based on what you said. Oh, you are and so clever. Yeah, this is one of my manipulative moves. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, they're short, right? So it actually, when we first got here and we weren't recording, Crystal said, I kept on reading and putting it down. And I think that's something that's really interesting about short story collections. You don't have to read them in the order that they are in the book. You can like dip in and out. Um, that has its risks. Um, because I think there is a kind of immersive um, atmosphere that if you read all of it at once, it's overwhelming, right? And like that's part of its purpose. But, but I actually needed to like take space from this book several times when the world that we were immersed in was just a little bit too bizarre and I needed time to process it, right? And the endings of the stories, I, so I think the, like what people will classically say about the short story is that they have really like kind of twist strong endings. So quick climaxes, the, the ending punches. Okay. Yeah. And that's like a feature of the genre generally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Or most of the time, I think, I right? think most of the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you think the, the short story precedes the novel, right? I mean... As a you, genre? As a genre? I mean, don't you get, like, sort of long short... You get, like, poetry and then, like, long poems... I mean, you get the tale of Genji as the first novel, and that's, like, in what... I, I'm not going to look it up, so I don't want to say exactly. Does, every, does everyone, everyone agree with that? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I think. I think we're having a disciplinary. Oh. <laughs> what do you think is the first novel? 
Oh, I don't know. I was always thought it was Don Quixote. No. I was taught in I was taught in my Japanese literature class. It was Tale of Genji. Oh well, it probably is. And then I never read that because I went to school in a Western stupid university, (laughs) where the only Japanese book I read was Snow Country, which is an amazing novel. So Japanese, uh, the Tale of Genji, uh, classic work of Japanese literature, 11th century. And they call it a novel? Yeah. What do you mean they call it a novel? (laughs) I mean. Usually, what I mean is, usually, like, old texts from that aren't Western texts, they come up with some, like, name for it. Like, it's an epic, or it's a this, which which kind of makes it seem less... Right, it sort of distances it from Western literature in the modern contemporary sense, you know? So you have a point, right? I think you're right that, like, for a long time, literary criticism thought of Don Quixote and kind of the rise of the novel as a corollary of modernization industrialism exactly i mean the printing press you need a printing press in order to distribute novels yes so i always heard it was the yeah industrialization the rise of the city and the rise of the middle class and that rise of the novel novel, that all happens but but short stories came before that right i think so i mean i think think there were short stories i mean certainly folk tales and oral literature right that is a short story form Mm -hmm. which i think is interesting for this story kind of thinking about folk tales and right Oh, 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 yeah. Anything yeah. else to add about the genre? No, I have nothing. <laughs> more to say. But I enjoyed this this quibble. It was fun. We're gonna fight later. We're gonna <laughs> cage <great>. match. <laughs> yeah, the stuff that you miss, you know, after the podcast is over. Um, so I thought I'd just ask us to like maybe talk about our favorite story, or perhaps. You know, I think this was kind of Crystal's phrase, the story that elicited the most response. Uh, <laughs> emotional response. Emotional response. And so I don't know if anybody um, wanted to start us off with their favorite story. I could start us off. Yeah. Off. Um, I think I have. Well, so this book is so weird to me because <laughs> in every story I read, there are moments where I was like, this is amazing. I love this. This is yeah. unbelievable. And then in a lot of the stories, there were also moments where I was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't understand. And, yeah. and I had to go back and reread a couple of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, in one sense, I, and I, in fact, after I read the first two stories, I was talking to a friend of mine. Actually, I think I texted you guys, too, and was like, this book is unbelievable. Yeah. You can't, have you guys read this? I mean, it's unbelievable. But I had, that was two stories in. <laughs> I didn't change my mind, but I think I sort of, there's a way that that modulated some, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but really, my first, my favorite stories are the first two. Oh, interesting. Um, the okay. husband stitch, I think, is extraordinary. Yes, yeah. I agree. And as a folklorist, I mean, like yes. the, the weaving in of all those different yeah. tales, these mm-hmm. sort of, um, fairy tales, folk tales, yeah. and urban legends. Yes. yes. No, I'm laughing that. because I feel like I read the first two, and I literally texted Adriana, being like, "I just read the first two stories. What the heck is the roommate? What is it?" <laughs> I think you said hell. I'm just going to point it out. Todd's <laughs> mom's listening. Yeah. She's okay. I no, she's yeah, I was just like, what is this red thing? What? What is it? But then there is like a, you said it's like a children's story. Well, so I didn't know it as, I, I, I guess it's actually been a recently published children's story, but I remember it as a campfire story. And I am sure that it's one of those stories I heard, you know, uh, with other children telling each other, like, so it was that story about the ribbon and the neck, and there was also the story about the doll that came alive in the night and, like, you know, goes around eating people. Whoa. So you guys haven't heard that one either, I can tell by your faces. No. (laughs) I'm older than Chucky. (laughs) I'm older than Chucky. That wasn't 
even solicited. I don't know why you said that. <laughs> That's the only doll I know that I guess, I guess I'm older than Chucky, too. And I thought it was, like, interesting, like, the beginning of that story, right? So it says, if you read the story out loud, please use the following voices. Me, as a child, high-pitched, forgettable. As a woman, the same. Yeah. The boy who will grow up and grow into a man and be my spouse, robust with serendipity. <laughs> my father, kind, booming, like your father, or the man you wish was your father. My son, as a small child, gentle, sounding with the faintest of lisps, as a man like my husband. All other women, interchangeable with my own. So that, that was kind of like interesting, like beginning to the book and the story. Right. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that the way I read the story or understood the story I mean that notion and actually a lot of this of the uh, stories in the collection are like this about sort of about how um, women get sort of um, lumped together or thrown away or um, made invisible or disappear mm-hmm. or I mean even like um, you know the uh, especially heinous which is the and we'll which told is, you have to get to that right we'll get to that one but well, I won't even say it. I'll wait till we get to talking about that one. But <laughs> a lot of the stories are like that. I mean, the the one about the women who are slowly fading away and are you know sewed into the dresses, the prom dresses, and all that. Um, it, it's a it's a world, a seemingly um, horrifying world, where these things are happening to women. But then, of course, you there's always this um, overlap between that. Uh, I hate I don't want to call it a fantasy world, but a imagined world in the real world um, there's not that much difference between the two right, right? and that's, right. that's it's sort of like surreal elements right along with like the real elements right. well I guess what I would say is it takes the ideological premises of our social worlds and then takes them to their logical conclusion in this kind of fantastic you know making the um I think someone, one of these re- reviewers said something like taking women's emotions and desires and hungers and losses and making them actually material, right. Like right. making them visceral. And I think, you know, when I was reading this book and pretty much every review that you read about this book mentions or compares her to Angela Carter, yeah. um, the British writer who is most famous for The Bloody Chamber, which is... Um, retellings of... Uh, like Blackbeard, Blackbeard, uh, Blackbeard, or no, Bluebeard. Bluebeard. <laughs> Fairy tale. Little Red Riding Hood, and but in her work, she does these kind of amazing things. Where and I think she does precisely that. The women in the stories have desire; they want to have sex, right. or they want to um, eat, you know, mm-hmm. someone, or they want, you know, so they they sort of come alive in this way that women yeah. in fairy tales, which is, I mean, this is a big sort of uh, point of the collection, is in fairy tales, women and girls are either always dangerous or they're the victim right or they're the source of evil or, or they're like the object they're of the desire. object of desire yeah. i mean they never get to sort of act on their own their bodies mm. are dismembered their bodies are the place upon which you know men sort of play out their fantasies and all those sorts of hmm. things and i think i know for a fact that angela carter's book really upends that and she was like obsessed with um, the Marquis de Sade. She wrote this whole book about mm-hmm. the Marquis de Sade and uh, pornography, which basically she argued that um, the Marquis de Sade uh, actually didn't objectify women in the way that women had been objectified to that point, that he actually saw them as more than just baby making machines. And so that like, there was some way in which his desire for women and even to like punish them or whatever was liberating. Now, I don't know if, if yeah. people would agree with that or not, but she had this thing that she was working on that way and sort of trying to maybe 
overturn those stereotypical which, powers. Which is interesting to bring it back to kind of the ending then of this story. Because I feel like basically in the ending, right, like the husband does transgress and she does literally get like her head gets like falls off. It falls off. So I'm curious about like, but you know, you know, what's then, what's the message then? Okay, so that story, I guess I don't see it as maybe that story isn't the one where you know the woman is like she's shown as women are shown in all these fairy tales right i mean it's, it's basically I, a version of bluebeard in some ways right? I, i'm going to nuance going? this okay, go ahead. because i do think that the story um offers we see this character as someone who does desire mm-hmm. who has in the That's beginning true. of the story a really great deal of autonomy and control mm-hmm. and you know she basically tells the husband you know like i have two rules mm-hmm. right you don't touch the ribbon, and what's the second rule? Oh my God, I can't remember. Um, I'll look it up, but keep going. Oh, and he cannot finish inside of me. He cannot touch my green ribbon, okay. cannot finish inside of me. But that was right. before they were married. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they get married, and like there are all these ways in which the, the kind of development of their relationship and the having the son, um, you know, show her still trying to like maintain these two, two these like simple two rules that maintain her autonomy, her sense of herself, um, and he slowly wears her away, right? right? Um, and so does the son, right? There's something about masculinity that is seen to be incredibly possessive, even in the face of someone who has given so much of right. herself, right. right? That is a very amazing way to put it. Uh-huh. I mean, because they're not hard rules. No. And even after they're married, the one rule is don't touch the ribbon. Yeah. But he can't, neither he or the son right. cannot help themselves, which exactly. I think suggests that men cannot help taking everything that women have. I would or taking the one thing that women don't want them to have. Yes. Or why can't women have that one, one thing? thing? You know, it, okay. Which so, she says a couple of times. Yeah. Right. Why can't I have this one thing? I'm going to make a tremendously awful analogy. Uh-oh. I feel like this is like the, um, I would compare this to the N-word in white people. Like why white people want to say the N-word all the time. So bad. And it's like, it's like the one thing they right. Can't it's the say. one thing they can't say, and or, or it drives them really. It makes them really, really angry, right? And I think this is a which clarifies it's about power, right? 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 No. Right? So you can't keep anything back from me, right? Um, and so, yeah, in this story. But if I think about the next story, which is inventory. Wait, no, no, don't move on from okay, this story yet. Oh my gosh. And we still have this is a question, what's our favorite story? I know, right? <laughs> so hold on, hold that thought. Goodbye, everybody. Adriana <laughs> has more to say about <laughs> husband stitch. I mean, I think what I find really brilliant about this story is as a story of consent, right? Yes. Is that, you know, for a long time, he manages to basically follow these rules. Um, follow and rule. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so she like, you know, they have this consensual relationship. And at the end, even it is still consensual because right, like on page 30, um, resolve runs out of me. I touch the ribbon. I look at the face of my husband. The beginning and end of his desire is all etched there. He is not a bad man. And that I realize suddenly is the root of my hurt. He is not a bad man at all. To describe him as evil or wicked or corrupted would do a deep disservice to him. And yet, and so she basically decides, I'll let him, right? Because she does say, do what you want. And, yeah. and this is what I think this story really drives at the heart of, that women 
um, our consent can be given and it it's, looks freely given, but it's within a world in which we've been worn down, right? In which this kind of request that he has to possess is can't be seen as evil, can't be seen as demanding. Yes. They're, like, they're like microaggressions, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like a sort of uh, accumulation, accumulation. Mm -hmm. of these sort of small things, which each in of themselves, people might argue, well, that's not, that's not right. that big of a deal. Right. And, I, and deal. I think the difference, though, is that for the most part, right, like racial or microaggressions tend to come from people that you don't necessarily know that well, right? And I think this is like even harder because it is the most, one of the most intimate relationships she has, right? It comes from somebody who... Do you think there what? should be another word for it in this context? Is it different? No, I don't know. I was just thinking that, like, I think that's what makes, like, consent and, right, in these kinds of relationships, like, even harder to kind of parse out is that, like, this is the person that she shared her life with, right? Like, she shared almost everything, right? So I feel yeah. like it's kind of this, like, interaction that... Why, why I think, like, consent is actually really difficult to talk about and, like, think right. about and, like, do, <laughs> right? Because it's not... Right, so, like, even with, like, the white people in N-word, right, it's, like, I mean, maybe it does happen with intimate partners, like, maybe that's a whole other story, but it's a lot of the times, right, it's, like, strangers and it's, like, people who are sort of saying it, like, with people that they don't necessarily know or whatever it is, but I think, like, what makes, like, consensual relationships so difficult is that often it is, like, right, it's, like, this person that you have consent to do in so many ways, and, like, that, um... And that's and yet that's not enough, right, for him. That right. it's like there's still like that, right. you know. That I can't say it any more brilliantly than Crystal did about the kind of like mm -hmm. that one thing, right? So yeah. yeah, so I guess maybe to me like that's makes it more complex and makes right. it even within, sadder within or, the context you know. of an intimate relationship. Yeah, or that it's always, especially in the context of an intimate relationship, that yeah. right? Because there's like. When it is like, you know, somebody that you don't know or somebody you've just met, like I think there's like a clearer line, it's like those boundaries are um, stronger in some ways. But I think when it's with somebody, it's not as... Can I um, point us to like a middle, yeah. not a middle, but like a earlier part of the story because I... Um, Man, I don't want us to like jump over like all of the stuff in the middle because right, like there's actually it's a really rich story and the way stories are kind of interwoven, right? These stories that she tells her yeah. son or then later tells us. Mm -hmm. um, on page 29, she's. Um, it starts out on page 28. It's I love this voice. There's a classic, a real classic that I haven't told you yet. And so then this narrator tells us about. Um, you know, that it's the urban legend, you know, two people parked by a lake, they hear on the radio about like some psychotic, crazy person who's escaped an asylum and has a hook for a hand. Um, and in the story, I think, you know, like they're found dead or something like that, right? Yep. Um, the way that this ends is about the girlfriend saying, I want to go, what if he's close by? The boyfriend says, don't you trust me? The girlfriend nodded reluctantly. Well then, he said, his voice trailing off in that way she would come to know so well. He took her hand off her chest and placed it onto himself. She finally looked away from the lakeside. Outside, the moonlight glinted off the shiny, shiny steel hook. The killer waved at her, <laughs> grinning. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the rest of the story. And like, what I came away from that was, who's the real danger here? It's not the guy with the hook. It is the boyfriend. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is interesting because I have a friend who's always worried about when I come home at night that there's going to be some like lurking stranger who somehow broke into my house and like, you know, which I'm like, I get that, you know, obviously there are things like that happen, but I'm like, 
who am I going to date or kill to my intimate partners? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So thinking about like who's a danger to me, like that is what I think about. Right. 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 So, and, you know, in the story too, right? Like she gets her head's torn off. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. By the, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to say Should we move on to another story? Yes, we can yeah. Do you want to do yours? There's so much to talk about. Yeah. I know. That's this is the other thing about short story collections. It's, like, <laughs> like, it's going to be impossible yeah, to talk yeah. about this every story. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to get to We'll it. do at least four. Okay. At least four. So Crystal. Um, this is hard because I didn't really have a favorite story. I think each story elicited different, of course, emotional responses. And maybe the one um, that I most responded to was the eight fights. Um, and that was the story about the woman starts on 149 who was going who was who for you know had this really difficult relationship with uh, between herself and her body actually um and she decides to have weight loss surgery because her sisters have it and do it successfully um but then there's then kind of conflict with her daughter enters the story um and then in the end um she has this interaction with this being that was her body that she mistreated and didn't realize. It's just a really interesting way to um, think about that. And I think it resonated um, with me because I think, for, for, for me in particular, and maybe some women, other women experience this too, there's this disconnect between like your mind and your spirit and your physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and there are also these desires to be like thin and to look like what is societally acceptable and sometimes you go through such tremendous lengths to get to that that you don't realize that this part of you has been inside of you supporting you uh, comforting you and being with you and you just throwing it away and I think that was that was why this was so um, so uh, emotional emotional for me because she didn't realize that this being she was hurting was actually not outside of herself it was herself right and then when she passed away it was the thing that collected her up and took her when everything else had faded away and is that suggestion that it would go on it would live right exactly yeah 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 yeah, and, and it's yeah. violent, right? Like when she, it's like, is it right? Like when she's in the basement, where she kicks it. And, yeah. yeah, when right. she kicks yeah. it, she's yeah. so terrible. Yeah. It's like, yes, um, yeah. So it's like the it says like it looks about a hundred pounds, kind of looks like her daughter. Mm-hmm. And I kneel down next to it. it. It is a body with nothing it needs, no stomach yeah. or bones or mouth, mm-hmm. just off and then I crouch down and stroke yeah. her shoulder, um, or what I think it's a shoulder. And then later on, she says. I do not know I'm kicking her until I'm kicking her. Mm-hmm. She has nothing, and I feel nothing, except she seems to solidify before my foot meets her, and so every kick is more satisfying than the last. Mm-hmm. I reach for a broom, and I pull a muscle, swinging it, swinging it back, um, back and in, and back and in, and the handle breaks off of her. And I kneel down and pull a soft handful of her body out of herself, and I throw them against the wall, and I don't know I'm screaming until I stop, finally. Yeah, it's like um, such self-hatred is actually, yes. I feel like... Um, yeah not quite dense enough of a word right. to get at it. Yeah, because it's more than self-hatred. It's like it's a violence toward, mm-hmm. yeah, toward yourself, but beyond, it's an enacted 
corporal hatred. Right. So it's not just like a feeling like, oh, well, I hate you, but it's an actual, I want to destroy you because right. I dislike, I hate you so much, and I'm going right. to violently do that. It's, um, I mean, I, I wonder about this if, if part of what is so painful and, um, and, and terrible about it is that hatred that, you know, she's, that she that happens in the story and that you're describing is partially forced upon you by outs- by the outside culture, right? Right. I mean, be- right. So you sort of internalize what your body is supposed to look like, which right. is being mirrored back to you in every sort of element of culture. And so you grow up to hate your own body, right. even though it's you. And then if you do what she did, I mean, I, I, I know I have a little bit of difficulty, like, judging I don't think she's judging anyone who gets weight loss surgery no but dealing with this kind of difficult element of it which is that you would sort of throw away part of yourself because you feel a pressure to be something different I mean is that fair to say I think what's fascinating though about and I think it's not just this story is that there it's really hard to tell where this self-hatred comes from right like the social is alluded to maybe with the sisters but other than that it's really I think like well, actually also the, sorry, can we get a I was gonna say she talks about having a, a pre-cow body and an after-cow body so before mm-hmm. she has her daughter yep. after she has her daughter right and so I think part of it is is in that I mean I think that's why that relationship is so important because this is the moment where you know she has her daughter her body changes in a way that she doesn't appreciate and part of that not appreciating that is reflected in the relationship she has with that's what I'm reading into it um, yeah, yeah part yeah. of the tension in the relationship yeah. with her daughter is around these bodily issues and yeah. you know her not accepting the changes in her body and then her daughter um, understanding that to me she doesn't love her right at one point the the daughter says something like so you hate your body you know do you hate mine too right, exactly Exactly. Right. Well, I think it is. I mean, the social part also, like 166, right? Mm-hmm. She talks about, like, going out. Um, and she says, um, you look wonderful, says one. Have you lost weight? Asks another. True, true, true. I smile. I get a manicure. I tap my new nails along my face to show them off. Um, I am a new woman. A new woman becomes best friends with her daughter. A new woman laughs with all of her teeth. Mm-hmm. A new woman doesn't just slough off her old self. She tosses it aside with force. So I think there is this like idea of like mm-hmm. once you kind of quote unquote look like right the society's right. ideal, your life is going to be perfect, right? Right. Mm-hmm. People will appreciate you. People will notice you. Your daughter will love you. Right. Right. So I think there's definitely that like social critique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. That's what she's. Oh, I'm sorry that this weight loss will suddenly change everything about your life. But she's not unconflicted, and I I think, like, I really... um, There's this, on page 159, and this is just something that I think Machado does in all her stories. There are these stories that come up within the stories. So this um, character uh, goes to the doctor to get the um, surgery done, and she says to the doctor, did you ever read that picture book about Ping the Duck? Mm-hmm. And the doctor says no. And she tells her about Ping the duck, was always punished for being the last duck. Um, he hated uh, getting whacked across the back, so he ran away. He met some black fishing birds with metal bands around their necks. They caught fish for their masters, but could not swallow the fish whole because of the bands. When they brought fish back, they were rewarded with tiny pieces they could swallow. They were obedient because they had to be. 
ping with no band was always last and now was lost. And there's an ongoing thread throughout the whole story about like her, it's not just that she hates herself, she hates herself because she has no control, because she needs to be like those little, um, let's see, what are they called? Black fishing birds who can't make choices for themselves, who has to be basically told and forced to make certain decisions. Whereas her mother, right, would eat eight bites and then Right. put stuff yeah. away yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh so I mean it's social and then there, there's also that really that like family yeah, yeah family dynamic yeah. stuff but it's also like a gendered family dynamic yeah right? so is social also yeah so yeah oh we don't see any men here do we yeah is the doctor's name Dr. U Doctor, it is Dr. U it's supposed to be like Dr. U like Y-O-U mm. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it would sort of fit in with what I was saying earlier. What we're, I yeah. Like that this whole thing is, and what you were saying, that this whole thing is an, is an attempt to have control over something. Yeah. Um, and like you said, I mean, I think there's this, this tension between, I mean, people will say to people, why don't you just not eat? Or why don't you just do this? You know, like, and... And they think yeah. about this in terms of addiction, right? Like, um, if you're addicted, it's a moral failing. Right. As opposed to a sickness. And I mean, like, um, food addiction is maybe the worst addiction there is because you have to eat. Like, right. so you have to be, you're addicted yeah, to Yeah, you can't give it up. Can't go cold turkey. Mm -hmm. No. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go cold turkey right now. Can we order some cold turkey? <laughs> maybe some tofurkey. <laughs> because I feel like I was thinking about her mom, but then like her daughter is actually like pushing the whole Cezanne 158 saying, mom, I just don't understand why you can't be happy with yourself. Yeah. You've never been, and then she's like, she's furious constantly. She was all accusation. She's taken the moral high ground for me by force time and time again. I had committed any number of sins. Why didn't I teach her about feminism? Why did I persist in not understanding anything? And this, this takes the cake, and no, don't forgive the pun. <laughs> Language is infused with food like everything else, or at least like everything else should be. So I feel like it was also interesting that like the pushback she's getting from her daughter is around this like try to you mm -hmm. know, self accept and like mm -hmm. right to be at the same time, right? Like right. I think she also feels like exactly, right? So the body that she has now is because of her. Right. And if right. you don't love your body now, mm -hmm. maybe you don't love me. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like it's a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but I think kind of what you said actually made me think about um, before okay, moving on. I guess my favorite mm -hmm. story because I feel like was the resident, where I feel yeah. like she. Oh. The story was a trip. Too. It was. It was a whole trip. trip, but I also yeah. love that, like, you know, and the not the end, but the part that you know, sort of the narrator gets to, where so one of the other writers or one of the other artists says, "You're crazy. You're crazy," and she's like. So what? Right? And then she's like, thinking. Yeah, and I was yeah. thinking about this, like, how do we push back against these societal norms and these, like, right? And so she says, um, and this is on 210, it is my right to reside in my mind. It is my right. It is my right to be unsociable. It is my right to be unpleasant to be around. Do you ever listen to yourself? This is crazy. That is crazy. Everything is crazy to you. By whose measure? That's it, right it there. It is my right to be crazy, as you love to say so much. I have no shame. I have felt many things in my life, but shame is not among them. You may think that I have an obligation to you, but I assure you that being thrown together in this arbitrary arrangement does not cohesion make. 
I have never had a less of an obligation to anyone in my life, you aggressively ordinary woman. Yeah. <laughs> Were you like, yeah, I was, yes, I was snapping. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's why I love the story. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, the beautiful, I thought the ending was really beautiful, too, right? And I love that she, like, twisted around because she's supposed to be at this, like, writer's residency, and it's, like, sounds like this is an application for another one. Yeah. <laughs> in the story, yes, which is awesome. And so then she says, uh, but I ask you, readers, thus far in your jury deliberations, have you encountered any others who have truly met themselves? Yeah. Some, I'm sure, but not many. I have known many people in my lifetime, and rarely do I find any who have taken down to the quick, who have, who have been taken down to the quick pruned. To oh, the quick. Taken down to the quick pruned, so their branches might grow back healthier than before. Yeah. I can tell you with perfect honesty that that night of the forest was a gift. Many people live and die without ever confronting themselves in the darkness. Pray that one day you will spin around at the water's edge, lean over, and be able to count yourself among the lucky. So, I mean, yeah, and I just love this, both the ending and that, like, part, because I felt like it's kind of this perfect kind of response to some of the things that happened in the other stories, right? To just, like, take ownership, but also this notion of, like, how many of us truly take a look at ourselves. Um, yeah. but, but I think what, what really um, also connects the story to the other stories is that to take that look at yourself is not um, pleasant at yeah. all, right? Like it shows how grotesque and challenging it is. Um, and one of the ways it does this in this story is that we get throughout the story um, the glimmer and the foreshadowing of some terrible stories, right? Mm -hmm. So um, one of them is, uh, you know, this thing that happened to her when she was younger. Right. Um, and that we eventually find out what it was. But the other is about this story they would tell at the camp, right? Because this residency is close to a Girl Scout camp that she used to go to. Um, and what that story is, or that that's, uh, poem is, twist me and turn me and show me the elf. I looked in the water and saw myself, I whispered, she says on page 208. Horrifying. It was grotesque in the extreme. No wonder the rhyme had removed itself from my memory. Sending a child after an enslaved mythical brownie and then providing a rhyme that would only serve to tell the child that she herself was the enslaved mythical brownie and not her brother, mind you, but her. So there's like, again, she's getting at this way in which gendered socialization is particularly primed narratively, right? To see yourself as the outsider, as maybe magical, but also, you know, grotesque and terrible. And scary. And, it, and scary. This, story, this is a story where the name of the brownies comes from, right? Like yeah. the actual, the Girl that we send little girls to, like, you're yeah. a brownie now. You're a brownie. And here yeah. is that story. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah. I, 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 she reminds us, right? So, like, all of the, the, like, there's so many elements in the story. It's really, like, again, another really rich story. But I think they add up to this way in which, here, she's going to a residency. Isn't that beautiful? It's going to be, like, fabulous. And uh, what's the word I want? Kind of bucolic. And, yeah. um, and yet, you know, we get a dead rabbit at the beginning when she's right. arriving. We get a dead rabbit at the end that is what yeah. propels this yeah. whole, like, uh, not breakdown. It's more like a finding her voice. Breakthrough. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, we get the brownie story. And, I mean, the monologue at the end is basically about looking at herself in the water and that's what she's come through. Um, looking, looking at yourself in the darkness. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. like, is, is that what, um, it's like what therapy is about, right? I mean, like, it, it's, 
it's 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 a thing and and many people resist something like that because it is so difficult and so painful but like if you really get down to the deep dark center of what your what's going on inside of you if you go to the place where no one wants to look um that's hard to do but maybe it's something that we all need to do because we would then understand what really pushes us you know because I think, like, yeah. part of the problem with, well, I'm speaking of myself. Like, <laughs> I don't want to this, perfect, I impose this about. on other people. <laughs> but, you know, like, it, it, I didn't even really realize some of those things until I started to, like, you know, have someone sort of be like, well, but did you think about this? And I'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. that is down there, right? You know? I just think about, so she has that passage about, like, what happens if you go into your own mind, and this is on 2.15. Yes. And she says, what if you colonize your own mind, and when you get inside, the furniture is attached to the ceiling? What if you step inside, and when you touch the furniture, you realize it's all cardboard cutouts, and it's all collapses beneath the pressure of your finger? What if you get inside, and there's no furniture? What if you get inside and it's just you in there sitting in a chair, rolling figs and eggs around in a basket of your lap and humming a little tune? What if you get inside and there's nothing there and the door hatch closes and locks? What is worse, being locked outside of your own mind or being locked inside of it? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you guys, though, because one element that's really interesting in the story is that um, she gets to this residency um, and she meets a whole bunch of the people and they all have like different kind of things they're doing, the sculptor or the painter. She can't hear the painter or her name, right? Like she kind of like, she talks about hearing the painter's name when they are first introduced. And she says it's kind of like mercury, right? She was holding it in her hand and it slips away. And then every time the painter talks throughout the story, she can't hear her until this very like last um, bit. So on page 214, um, the painter says, uh, Lydia, so Lydia, who um, the narrator scared with the rabbit and, and then yelled at, yeah, has left. And the painter says, oh, well, she said, her voice throaty and clear. Not everybody's cut out for this, I guess. And the narrator's like freaked out. She's like, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. It was the first sentence of hers that stayed in my mind the way speech should. And at the same time, the painter's chewing this meat, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's <laughs> rarer than I would have thought safe to eat, she says. So I don't know, what do you guys think know. about that? What is. Who's the painter? Yeah, well, well what is happening there? What, what is this moment of being able to hear the painter about? And her, she's so visceral of a character. I don't know, I have my answer. I feel like a lot of the stories are like that. Like there are these things that I'm like that. That's what I was saying, you know, before. Like there's things that I'm like, yes, I'm, I got that. Yeah. And then there are things where I am. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things about um, short story collections for me personally, reading them, that's hard for me is when I read, I'm so much into a story while I'm reading it. And then when I move to the next one, I'm into that one. And the other yeah. one goes, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So, like, the, we're talking about all these stories. The, the one that I can remember in the most detail is the second to the last one, because that was the pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, those are the last ones I read. Which was um, this one? Re- no. Resident, or Resident is, is the next to last one, yeah. The next to the last or is the last one? The last one is Difficult at Parties. No. Yeah, okay. But anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's hard for me to um, put these all together. And I think yeah. you should. I mean, I think she wants us to. 
I mean, there's a, there's a mention of difficult at parties in the residence, I think, or even or in the story before. Like, there's ways that there's a thread being pulled through all of the stories, but it's really, I have to stay with the collection and just reread it and reread yeah. it in order to really get it, I think. Well, I just, I think this is a collection that's so worth rereading. Mm -hmm. Um, like all of the stories are uh, really intriguing and like mysterious and immersive, and but they also have like I feel like they have all these like little cubby holes um, where you can go back and figure out more stuff. Uh, can we get to my favorite yeah. story? Yeah. I want to talk about inventory because I know oh, Todd. That's my, that's I know. I knew. I knew that. Um, so I was actually <laughs> going to choose the husband story. stitch, and you stole that. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Just like men. <laughs> yes. um, so inventory, one thing that I loved about it, this is a story where we don't get any explanation for exactly what's happening, right? Um, we get these lists or these paragraphs that are apparently part of a list where someone is basically detailing their sex life, right? Um, it starts out with one girl, right? Like, and, and it's pretty tame. One boy, one girl, my friends. It's still a little tame, but it's getting a little sexier. Two boys, one girl. It's getting definitely sexier. Is that about when you've started blushing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then she loses her virginity, right? And so um, we get that as a list, and embedded in each of these paragraphs, we start to see this hint of the world in which the narrator lives, which is one in which there is a virus and eventually it's a pandemic um, and maybe even the end of the world, right? We see um, through these stories, the virus blossoming, right? Um, people fleeing um, and moving east. She eventually ends up in Maine. Um, one thing that really stood out to me is that there is this tension in the story because um, we find out on page 38 she sleeps with a former CDC employee, um, a brunette, and um, the CDC employee tells her no one was having any luck developing a vaccine, but the fucking thing is only passing through physical contact, she said, if people would just stay apart. And then she curled up next to me, right? So there is this, this tension that she's recognizing that there is something really dangerous about sex and sexuality, about growing close to people, about human contact, um, but also that what what is life without no, human contact? Right. We can't resist it. I mean, we have to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, one more thing, and then I'll let you go off on no. it too. Um, so the other thing I love, right? Like, so you're getting these whole lists, and eventually, like, and you hear about the pandemic, and you're seeing that, but you also start to see her talk about how she makes lists to deal with her anxiety, right? With this kind of like difficult life where uh, for a lot of it, she's on the move and thinking about death. Um, and the story ends um, with her talking about this very list, right? Mm -hmm. This very inventory. And so I thought that was just a lovely metafictional moment where suddenly we know we can't escape this world, right? Because that moment really ensures that we are a part of it. It's not just out there, we're here with her writing that list. So she says, I'm 43. Let's see. I checked my own face in the mirror and my eyes were still clear. I consulted my emergency list and its supplies. I took my bag and tent and I got into the dinghy and I rode to the island, to this island where I've been stashing food since I got to the cottage. 
I drank water and set up my tent and began to make lists. Every teacher, beginning with preschool, every job I've ever had, every home I've ever lived in, every person I've ever loved, every person who has probably loved me. Next week, I will be 30. The sand is blowing into my mouth, my hair, the center crevice of my notebook, and the sea is choppy and gray. Behind it, beyond it, I can see the cottage a speck on the far shore. I keep thinking, I can see the virus blooming on the horizon like a sunrise. I realize the world will continue to turn even with no people in it. Maybe it will go a little mm-hmm. faster. <sighs> such a good yeah. ending. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know the thing, like, she's such a, like, a good, like, a uh, user of language. Like, the way, mm-hmm. there's some sentences in here and some passages where I was just like, yeah. that is amazing. And that's a really nice one, too. Yeah. And the way she uses figurative language too is really good. But I love stunning. Yeah, yeah. I love this story. I mean, just for what you said, but this thing that she does a lot in the book, where you're you're like you're here, and then there's stuff going on back here. Yeah. And you're just vaguely aware of what it is, and then it comes to the forefront. Yeah. yeah. And now you're like, okay, well, how has everything changed, right? It's in some ways actually a little cinematic, mm-hmm. right? We yeah. get these close-ups, we're like in her world, and then it scopes out. Right. And we get the world around her and suddenly you realize, oh my God, like everyone's dying. Or like when you yeah. see like a frame of a movie where there's something in the background, like yeah. something's moving back there and you're like, what is that? You know, and then later on you figure out, you see, you, or it's revealed to you what it was. So those things that are happening, there's like, just sort of dropped in the background um, that you might, I mean, how many yeah. times, this happened to me all the time in the book, I read and I read past something, I was like, wait a minute, and then I went back and then, you know, like the CDC yeah. woman, or the first paragraph in that story where um, she mentions the the virus, yeah. which is like, I think on page 37, you know, I met him at the funeral for the last surviving member of his family. I was yeah. So, I mean, that actually, she's not even mentioning no, the virus th- specifically, but she mentions people dying. And you might start there thinking, like, okay, why is... Well, it was a 35, right? Yeah, also is there before um, there? Yeah. So they're, like, watching TV. Oh, yes. It the- um, was replaced by a list of symptoms of the virus oh, right. blossoming a state away in Northern California. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, planes were grounded. The border of the state had been closed. The virus appeared to be um, isolated. But I was kind of um, thinking about the cinematic thing, because I feel like the what I was thinking about is... It's a book too, but the you know sort of all these like narratives of like the apocalypse coming right and sort of and they're so like a lot of them are kind of male centered right and I feel like the fact that this is about like these relationships right it's about these like intimate encounters she has as the world is possibly ending yeah as opposed to like I don't know right like people fighting each other or people right and then I'm thinking about like the road as like one of the things I thought about oh yeah it's like a common trope of the Mm -hmm. apocalyptic narrative is the last man standing you know the Omega Man or something right so I think I love this as like the other kind of like envisioning of like maybe what people will do is like seek each other and maybe what people will do is like you know and there was all those stories of like the people the the minister or I don't know what she was called but um, the religious leader right um, and then there's like the you know, bringing in refugees and like taking care of them, and so I don't know. Like I just thought it was like an interesting, given our, um, given how popular sort of these kinds of narratives are about the end of the world. Like mm-hmm. I thought this was kind of like an interesting. I think that's a really narrative. great point. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, at first, like we get that TV, you know, virus blossoming, and then at the bottom of page 36, we have the, I um, lost my job, right? Um, no one wanted quirky photography tips during an <laughs> epidemic. And it still feels light, yeah. right? It still feels, in a way that like when you are living through a terrible world crisis, um, you know, at first you are like, well, I guess I'm still here, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that I really like about this story is that it is consonant with all of the other stories in the collection as a story that recognizing recognizes the importance of telling stories. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that she learns so much by the women who like either come through her house or like end up in Maine with her, right? That's where she's getting her news. I mean, and, and so by the end of the story, you realize this is a world in which the infrastructure, the modern infrastructure we depend on has completely failed. Mm -hmm. Right, communication is non-existent by the end. Right, if we think of mass media, for example. Um, Speaking of mass media, uh -oh. I know nobody chose this as their favorite story, but maybe can we end? I by... didn't choose it because I knew we were going to talk about it. So. Yeah, so can we end by talking about especially heinous? Yes, we can. That was a brilliant. A transition, by the way, and your alarm is going off audibly, <laughs> even though you said, turned it off. I don't know it sound like amateurs. <laughs> we are awesome amateurs. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so especially Hainas, which is, she basically kind of retells the 12 seasons of Law and Order. And SVU. 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 That's, SVU. That's, that's right. That's right. SVU. And Law and Order SVU is still on television. Yes, yeah, so so I think it's in season 17. Yes. So just um, so and just quickly, like, I think it's kind of, you know, when you I started reading it. Yeah, I do have notes. Probably I shouldn't have said that. It. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. No, no, no. Probably because People would think you were pulling this right out of your head. Uh, probably what it made more now. I'm going to actually quote Roxanne Gay, and I would not be able to pull that out of my head. But she's actually written a lot about that show. Like, she mentioned in a lot of her interviews that, you know, when she's writing, she has it in the back of her, you know, it's like in the background, but she had this whole essay on the Brumpus.net about depictions of rape and violence, actually. Um, and so I'm going to just read the quote that she has about Law and Order, which I think kind of is interesting to think about in juxtaposition to the story. And she says, of course, if we're going to talk about rape and how we are inundated by representation of rape and how perhaps we've become numb to rape, we have to discuss Law and Order SVU which deals primarily in all manner of sexual assault against women, children, and once in a great while, men. Each week, the violation is more elaborate, more lurid, more unspeakable. When the air first showed, Rosie O'Donnell, I believe, objected quite vocally when one of the stars appeared on her show. O'Donnell said she didn't understand why such a show was needed. People dismissed her objections, and the incident was quickly forgotten. The series is in its 12th season and shows no sign of ending anytime soon. When O'Donnell objected to SVU's premise, she dared to suggest that perhaps the show dealing so explicitly with sexual assault was unnecessary, was too much, and people treated her like she was the crazy one, the crude censor. I watch SVU religiously. I've actually seen every single episode, and I'm not sure what that says about me. <laughs> so that's Roxanne Gay. That's Roxanne Gay. So, um, well. yeah, so I just thought it was like interesting in light of um, Machado's like, reimagining of SVU. Well, so really quickly, can I give the yeah, tagline yeah. for the show just in case you have yeah. not watched it? Um, in the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, the dedicated detectives that investigate these vicious felonies are members of an elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These 
are their stories. Are their stories. These are their stories. And so I actually think, like, when you look back at that tagline, we're seeing kind of why Machado gravitated towards this as a place to, like, begin retelling or to reframe um, or to deepen. I don't know. Like, there's, like, some interesting stuff going on thinking about whose stories are being told. Yeah. you know, is it the detectives? Um, is it the victims' stories that are being told? Yeah. Um, and what does that actually mean that the detectives, in some ways, become kind the of story. A, a, the story and, and victims within the system, too? Yeah. I mean, this is another one where I was like, what? Because there's like Abler and Stabler and Vincent. And They're doppelgangers. Yeah. Yes. yes, I love that. I love what that, too. That? I hated that. Yeah. You didn't like that? I think because it added another layer of complexity that in addition to like all of these SVU weirdness, weirdness I didn't have to remember, okay, wait, which which one is the real Stabler? It's like, hey, Abler and Henson. It just... It's easy to remember, Abler and Henson. <laughs> Stabler and Henson. I like, what? But I mean, uh, who uh, came first? <laughs> that is a great That's surreal a great, question. So right, because at some point the idea is that Abler and Henson are better detectives, like yes. they're actually finishing their cases. Yep. Whereas Stabler and Benson are stuck in this world where they can't solve anything. They, they can't yeah. solve things, and everything is difficult and painful, Crisis. and and they, and they can't be honest. I mean, they can't. They can't until really they, communicate until Benson kills the doppelganger. There we go. Then, then we're good. And after which they start solving all these cases. Right. <laughs> Then we're okay. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I did not get. So you, I, okay. Go, no, go, go, go. <laughs> I, I mean, I have so much to say about this story, and none of it fits together or really makes any sense. It's mostly questions. Um, but I wanted to just go back to what you had said about Law and Order SVU yeah. as a show, which I think um, this fits into it. Is like I can't um, reconcile both the way that Law and Order SVU creates or um, represents to us a world in which there's a rapist around every single corner and under every rock and in every room and blah, 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 and women. But on the other hand, that's true. I mean, like, there's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it both is a sort of inflammatory and kind of like um, a show that creates this, this panic through the exploitation of women's bodies, this exhibition of women's bodies um, violated, uh, killed, you know, displayed out. And, and so many shows do this. Um, they, they do that as sort of part of the police procedural. And yet, we know that, you know, you know, in four women, like three or four women have been sexually assaulted, all these sorts of really uh, horrifying statistics, statistics, the reality of it is, is that the world is like this. So, like you guys were saying before, I think, the the problem is, is that you're telling the wrong story. Um, You're you're telling the story of the people who go and see the bodies after the thing has been done, right? Like, you should be telling a different story. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you in some ways, but I think actually the, the critique, if I'm, I feel like I'm really hesitating because I think it's just a really complicated story, right? Yes. And it's so yes. disparate that it's hard. But what I would say is I think in focusing on Stabler and Benson, 
um, one thing that I got out of reading it all is that um, how damaging it is right, right. to live in a world where you have to see rapists yeah. around every corner right. um, where, and where you're for forced to confront like these really horrific things. Um, uh, so like in page 80, there's uh, vulnerable. For three days in a row, there is not a single victim. No rapes, no murders, no rape murders, no kidnappings, no child pornography, no sexual assaults, no sexual harassments, no forced prostitution, right? There's a whole laundry list. Not even a Then in the gloaming of a Wednesday, <laughs> I love that word, a man wolf whistles at a woman on her way to an AA meeting. The whole city releases its long held breath and everything returns to normal. So there's something about this story that recognizes a way in which sexual assault violence um, violence against women is built into the very bones of our society mm -hmm. right and yes. that there's so oh, i just yeah. want to clarify that i wasn't talking about the story i was talking about yeah. the show right? yeah 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 because yeah. i think you're right that the, the story really interrogates that by dumping us into the lives of these two people who have to encounter this every day. And then it's a story about, like you say, this, the city's implication in this, response right. to this, all that sort of stuff. I mean, the city is a huge character in this story, right? Right, like at one point, isn't it like a beating it's heart? Beating. Yeah. 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 But I think that story is called Vulnerable, which I like find interesting, but mm. also that, right, like what breaks that record is that somebody wolf whistles, right? That it's not actually like the most violent thing. Right. But I think it totally gets at this like yeah. the you know, the underneath and sort of like things like right, things like, right, some a man whistling at a woman unwanted. Something that seems so innocent. Exactly. So I think that actually is like a really brilliant little story. Yeah. But you were gonna say something about Well, I was stories. thinking about um, Terry and Williamson's work. She's at the she um, is in the Africana Studies Department at the U, and she actually studies um, kind of mass murder of women of color, and the goal of her work is to recover the stories of the women, because in so many instances, the news media kind of tells the story of the person who committed the crime, but very rarely do we hear the stories of, um, of the women who were you know, murdered. And I think in terms of the way in which I guess it's Benson mm -hmm. is collecting all of mm -hmm. these the girls. girls with the bells for their eyes. Yes. Yeah. And then in first they're in her apartment and then they're actually inside of her. Right. Um, and so like the, the impact yeah. of being unable to solve those crimes is that she then takes them all on inside right. of her. And we see the, we see how, you know, that basically tears her apart. Well, on, oh, I was going to say on page 122, we get like the moment when the last one leaves her, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be alone, Benson says. I don't either, Benson says, right? Because Benson's been torn apart by this, mm -hmm. but you need to go. And then Stabler comes in and he tells her, her name is Allison Jones. She was 12. She was raped by her father and her mother didn't believe her. He killed her and buried her on Brighton Beach. And the girl shakes her head as if to dislodge the sand in her hair and she leaves, right? And Benson is... Right, because the story's been told. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, and I was thinking of my favorite television show right now is a show called Mindhunter. Oh, I love that, yeah. yeah. Right, because think about that show, it's the same thing as this, right? I mean, it's these this team that's uh, searching for serial killers, and they're like the first uh, kind of FBI um, team to kind of use psychology and science and whatever to find serial killers but the show's about them 
and the killers. Like the killers, they actually go to prisons and interview these past serial killers. Right. And so the killers end up being like these big characters in the show. Yeah. And I'm, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking in the way that that's just so perverse and a kind of structural um, way of thinking about murder and you know, sexual violation and whatever of women that we can't, don't seem to be able to get out of. Um, because we, how does a dead body narrate right, itself? Right. Well, and what Terry and Williamson, what her methodology is, is she talks to the women's families. And so many times she's talking to the children. Mm. So those the yeah. stories come from them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I, I think what's great about Machado is that, like, in some ways, these are all stories about the voice of dead women, right? Like, um, Eight Bites is, a, you know, she's basically at her death door, right? It's the story of, like, what she is moving towards in death. Husband stitch, yeah. right? It's told from that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there, there, yeah. I don't know. Especially heinous gets it at, at it that way. Inventory too, right? Death door. Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe we can wrap it up and say read these stories. Um, yeah, I feel like we talk another hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. We didn't get to like all the. We didn't even yeah. get to all the stories, right? Yeah. But I guess um, as we usually do, maybe we could wrap it up by maybe mentioning one other thing that we're reading right now. Briefly, right? Briefly. <laughs> um, and I can start. And I'm actually making my way through Isabel Wilkerson's impressive narrative about the Great Migration called The Warmth of Other Sons, and I'm kind of hoping to get through it because she's actually coming to speak at Carlton on September 10th. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah. Nice. And it's free. It's free come on down. Anybody comes down to can Carlton we, College. Can I get backstage with you yeah. guys? <laughs> I don't even know if we'll get backstage, um, but as a qualitative researcher especially, she interviewed over a thousand people. Yeah, that's amazing. Right, this narrative, and it's amazing. I mean, she kind of follows like three main people, but kind of brings in all these other voices, so that is what I'm reading right now. Oh, I can go. Um, I actually am not really reading anything right this minute because I just... Because you're busy watching Mindhunter. That's, it's not all... It, our, it's coming back on September 9th. Girl, you are so out the of it. The second season <laughs> is coming back on September 9th, so then I'll... But right now, I just finished this book, like, last night, so, um, so I'm getting ready to start a new book. And I think I'm going to start another collection of short stories called Heads of the Colored People uh, hmm. by Nafisa Thompson Spires. And this is a, it's a first collection, just came out like a month ago, something like that, maybe bit longer. Um, so I'm going to check that out. Awesome. Uh, so I am preparing for class, which starts <laughs> September 10th, and I'm doing a new prep for a class, so I'm just like overwhelmed with all of that. But as part of it, I'm reading um, a collection of narratives called Underground America, Narratives of Undocumented Lives. It feels really timely right now, uh, especially, you know, there's just been news of um, passports being taken away from uh, Mexican-Americans living in Texas and on the border. Um, so making sure that we're really attentive to the stories that people in precarious positions have matters. Thanks. I um, am also preparing for class, but I just ordered this book um, that I'm not reading. I didn't assign to read for class, but I'm reading it myself. Um, it's Charlene Carruthers' new book, and Charlene Carruthers, um, who's an activist, a part of the, um, the black, let me get it right, um, excuse me, the Black Youth Project 100. And so she is, she is a black queer feminist activism and organizer, and her new book that just came out is called um, 
un unapologetic a black queer and feminist mandate for radical movements. Ooh. And so I just ordered it. It should be here tomorrow afternoon. So that's what I'm going to start reading. Um, and, and speaking of reading, the next book that we're going to discuss next on the podcast is Tyari Jones' An American Marriage. Uh, so look for that episode sometime in early fall. And I think we're going to be kind of leaving behind all of this awesome bizarreness to kind of like a more realistic sort of novel. Um, so I think it'll be kind of fun to kind of it go from realism, there. realism, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to have its difficult moments as sure. well. That's right. But. Yeah. So, and as always, thank you all for listening. And also another shout out to Heritage Tea House for having us here and letting us take up like a yeah. bunch of their tables. I feel like this, if they'll let us come back, like this maybe. Oh, we like it. Yeah. I yeah. like it yeah. here. And come check it out um, and support black businesses. So thank you all yes, for yes, yes. and see y'all in about a month. Bye. This episode of The Drip was recorded at our new home, Heritage Tea House on University Avenue in St. Paul, Minnesota. We'll be back at the end of September with a new episode on Tyree Jones' novel, An American Marriage. Till then, y'all hang easy. Mom, I'll call you. And if the hippies and the yippies And if the hippies and the yippies And if the hippies and the yippies